morning, church. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today we'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, which can be located on page 331 uh, in the blue Bibles in your seat backs. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take one of these as a gift here from us at Northridge Life. All right. Hear the word of the Lord. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of government and of peace, there will be no end. Of the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus says God's word. Join me in praying this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the word that we've received. First of all, from you as you gave it to us. We thank you for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that makes it infallible, makes it authoritative, makes it inerrant, makes it sufficient, makes it clear. We thank you for all of these things. God, we thank you for a promise, as we did at the beginning of this service that we read in this from the Old Testament, God, that assures us beyond any doubt that you are a God, as we've said for two weeks now, who keeps his promises. You say in Jeremiah, I am watching over my word to fulfill it. God, you've proven that abundantly, beyond dispute, in the work of Christ. And for this we thank you. So now, God, as we enter our last consideration of these events for this year, God, we pray that that we would return to these things many, many times in 2024 and consider what you've done through Christ. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. We pray that you would do a work by your spirit in me to be able to clearly communicate the truth, the glory, the impact of what you've done, God, recognizing all the time that I am just a weak vessel in your hands, God, but you are able to do mighty things through weak things. And so, God, we thank you for that. We pray that you would just bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So glad you're here. Merry Christmas. I hope you all have big plans. I hope there's a big stack of presents under your tree right now just waiting to be destroyed when you get home. Not not destroyed, but, you know, the, the wrapping paper. And so you all know your kids are just going to play in the boxes anyway, so you might as well have saved all that money. Um, but, uh, hey, uh, I want to remind you, just like I did last week, of a couple of things that are coming up real fast. 
Most importantly, if you have been here for several weeks, several months, and you think that we're the kind of people you would like to go to heaven with, um, then we'd like to invite you to consider joining Northridge Life as a member. We take membership very seriously here. And the way we, we have a process for that, we have two weeks of classes that run about an hour, hour and 15 minutes each. Um, they're coming up on January 14th and the 21st. Um, we'll start at 8.30 in the treehouse room, and uh, we'll, we'll go in time to, for you to get out and get some coffee before uh, service begins at 10. Those are Sunday mornings, and you have to come to both of them to be considered for membership. Coming doesn't make you a member, but we require that you go through the classes before you can become a member at Northridge Life. So I'm asking you, um, if you can, we've got a sign-up sheet on the on the table in the foyer. Um, please sign up today. we got some materials we need to get in your hands, and so we don't want to delay uh, getting those to you. If, if you're at that point, if you have any questions, by all means, see myself, see Pastor Gabriel, Natalie, or uh, Ginger after the service, and we'll be able, we'll do our best to answer those for you. But we'd love to have you uh, strongly consider that um, joining us. And uh, then, lastly, real quickly, uh, don't forget that next week to to uh, thank God for all of His goodness, His abundant goodness in 2023, and and pr- make some petitions uh, in prayer that for the, His goodness in 2024. We're going to join up here at 6.30, um, and we're going to pray for about an hour, worship a little bit, pray a little bit, and uh, to bring in the new year. And so we hope that you'll all join us for that. And then for those of you who um, realize that that as followers of Christ, you probably shouldn't go out to the club, um, we are inviting you to our house at 8.30. And um, everyone's like, what? You can't do that? Um, we are inviting you to our house at 8.30. Um, it, whoever wants to come, and uh, we'll have a good time just hanging out and playing some games and and uh, about midnight, we used to do this when I was a kid, um, Ginger is going to whip up some pancakes so everybody can have their first meal with us together, and I'll make some bacon and eggs, and we'll have a good time. So hope you hope you'll plan on joining us for that. As I always say, enough of that. Let's get into the Word. So we um, had a, a kind of abbreviated Advent series this year. We started the month of December with uh, Pastor Gabriel's ordination, which was a wonderful time for us together as a church. But uh, we spent the last two weeks, and this will be the third and final week of our Advent series, and we began two weeks ago considering how the most pressing need of humanity, and for all of time, has been the appearance of a Savior. We needed a Savior. And when we consider what I mean by that, we we didn't need a military savior to, to fight our earthly battles for us. We didn't need a, a political savior who could formulate and grant us better policies. We didn't need an intellectual savior who could provide greater wisdom or loftier things for us to think about. We needed a savior who could do all of this and much, much more. And this is because, if you've never considered this fact, humanity has never been mostly troubled by an external enemy. But we've troubled, we've been troubled and have troubled ourselves by internal enemies. Our most devastating defeats, and this applies to every single person in here, it will apply even to our children as they age. Our most devastating defeats have been wrought on us, not by others, but by ourselves. And all the church said, I'm glad you can admit that. I can admit it. 
The, the worst destruction wrought in my life is, has not been Ginger's fault. It hasn't been my mom's fault. It has not been my, my dad's fault. It hasn't been any church I've ever been a part of or any job I've ever worked. The worst trouble I have ever had was because I was my own worst enemy. Amen? Well, don't say amen when I'm talking about me. Say amen when I'm talking about you. You say, yes, Pastor Mark, and you continue to be your own worst enemy. So the point is, we don't need just more equitable policies. We don't need, what we really need is to be cured of our own selfishness and our own law-breaking. We don't need more intellectual fodder to ponder deep mysteries. What we need is to have the mystery of our rebellious heart resolved for us. And that's to say that our principal issues don't spring from some kind of lax leadership over us, but from the tyranny of our own sinful impulses. Our problems can't be solved, in other words, by just rearranging the natural or physical world. But our problems find their solution when our souls are renewed. We saw last week that all of these realities were made crystal clear in the history of the Jewish nation. And and that it was necessary for it to be so, since God desired to bring the Jews to the absolute end of their resources, to the absolute end of their solutions, so that they might instead look to Christ, the Savior that had been promised to our entire race since our fall into sin. And not just for the Jewish nation alone, but for the entire world. What promise am I referring to? Well, it's it's found in Genesis 3.15. We read it a lot here, and it says this. God is speaking of all people to the devil, to the serpent. And he says, I will put enmity... Between you and the woman, between her, between your offspring rather, and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. And the, and the, the language there indicates a fatal blow, like a crushing of the head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in church history, we have coined a term, the church fathers coined a term for this promise of the scripture since it's found so early in the gospel, in the, in the, uh, in the Bible. And they call it the proto-evangelium. And, and proto, of course, Latin for first, the first, and then evangelium speaks of the the uh, the same word where we get for evangelism, the the proclamation of the gospel. So the evangelium in in Genesis three fifteen is the first gospel, and and the 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 proto evangelium is a promise that remained that never got wiped off the books, and it would be kept by God as we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, several millennia later after it was given. In fact. This promise carried so much weight that it's implied in the angelic announcement we always consider during this season of the year. The, the, the announcement that they made in Bethlehem. Remember what they said? The angels meet the shepherds and they say, the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Who is Christ the Lord? Now, Christ came 
as good news. That's what that's what the angel said. And that, that word good news in the Greek is euangelizo. And euangelizo is kind of like evangelium. It, it speaks of evangelism. It's God was making an announcement. He was proclaiming something over the world when Christ came. And that what he was proclaiming was good news of great joy. Now, if you'll allow me one more Greek example, that word great is the, it, it, it's, it, it doesn't mean that this is pretty good. The word is megas, where we get mega. It's mega good. This is great joy. And, and what, he, what he's saying is it's, the, 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 the news is so good, it's busting at the seams with, 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 with potential to make you celebrate. And there's one more thing. It wasn't good news for the Jews. But the angel said, this will be good news for all the people. Jews and Gentiles together. And again, every Gentile in this room said, Christ would be the promised Savior, the only effective one ever offered for the entire world. He isn't one of many ways. He's not one of many truths, as our Unitarian Universalist friends like to say. But he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And not just for the Jews, but for all humanity. The angelic announcement gets even better. It was this. Hey, fellas, hey, shepherds, do you remember The proto-evangelium? Well, guess what? Your waiting's over. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Unlike the Old Testament announcements that the Savior would come, the shepherds were hearing news that they could take heart. Christ wasn't coming. He had come. He was here. The promises were fulfilled. And this Savior wasn't going to be like Moses, a great leader of God's people, but flawed. He wasn't going to be like Joshua, a great leader of God's people, but flawed. He wasn't going to be like David, a great leader of God's people, but flawed. He was superior because he would be born Christ the Lord. See, Christos, the Greek word, means God's anointed one. The Hebrew is Mashiach or Messiah. It's the one that God has specifically appointed for his service to bring fulfillment to the words of the prophets that preceded his arrival. And then Christ, the Lord, the Lord is curios, and it means, it means that Yahweh himself had come as Savior. They weren't getting some kind of of representative, clearly something significant happened in the incarnation of Jesus. But the question we're going to consider this morning is, what are the ongoing ramifications of, the, of that incarnation, if in fact there are any? In modern times, most of us who are Christians tend to think of Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem, accomplishing one singular main Purpose, And that is the forgiveness and subsequent salvation of individual sinners. A promise for those who believe. We have very unbiblically, if I might add, we've, we've used the language and we've taught our children to use the language of asking Jesus into their heart. 
And, and those people who believe are saved and therefore they escape God's wrath and eternal judgment for their sins in hell. And we, we teach that as the main purpose that Jesus showed up. But the gospel, what I want you to understand, is not less than this. I'm not preaching a new doctrine. It's not less than this. This is Christianity 101. What does the book of Romans tell us in chapter 10? It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is that not an incredible promise? But while I want want you to know that the gospel is not less than that, what I want you to consider this morning is if is the gospel much more than that. In order to ask this vital question, we have to look at how the scriptures, the Old and New Testaments, frame the work of the Messiah for us. Did Jesus appear, did he live a perfectly God-honoring and law-abiding life? Did he die a substitutionary death? Did he rise victoriously from the grave just so that we could live as individual believers, me and God having our own thing, unconnected from and unconcerned about God's larger purpose through Christ? Was that what Jesus died for? What is God's larger purpose then? Well, I would like to propose to you that it is the redemption of the entire cosmos. This question is the very reason we've looked at this familiar, I'll call it a Christmas passage from Isaiah for our text. Usually we don't open to Isaiah chapter 9 unless it's in December. But Isaiah 9 reiterates what we've been saying, that we're a people in need of saving. While it also paints in vivid, prophetic language the explosive nature of God's intervention on our behalf. Look at, look, open your Bibles again, if you would. Uh, just humor me. Open your Bibles again to um, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at the, the few verses that precede our text today. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter chapter 9. And let look at me. look with me at, uh, at verse 2 to begin this journey up to our text. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, we get this incredible, as I said, explosive revelation of God's plan for his people. The people who walked in darkness. Well, who are those? Those are people that need a savior, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And between the declaration of the people's darkness being devoured by holy light and our text, we read many promises, many promises listed of what God's redemptive ends will be through Christ. Look at verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Now you and I in 2023 might read that, read right past it. But you gotta understand that the Jews in Isaiah's time were being consumed by hardship we can barely imagine, all because of their sin and idolatry. And yet God promises to multiply them, to increase their numbers, increase their strength, increase their clout, if you will. And this is, I'm convinced, an indirect reference to the Gentiles' interest in, in, uh, entrance rather into the camp of the chosen people. Joy will soon replace, in the coming of the Messiah, the sorrow of his chosen 
people. Look what he says more in the, in the next part of that verse. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Their rejoicing will be the result of a bountiful supply of grace. Like after the crops were harvested by, by farmers in that agrarian culture in the best of their times. But these riches would be spoils. Notice it uses that word. They'll be spoils. And what is that telling us? It's telling us, get this, get ready to get excited. It's telling us that the defeat of their enemies will be the source of their wealth. And this is a picture of how our sinning, your sinning, my sinning, once only foreshadowed our judgment and our destruction in the grave. But now, watch what's happened. The same sinning that once just only pointed to our destruction, our imminent imminent demise, now through Christ where sin abounds, guess what? Grace much more abounds. And now we who once feared death, now we say, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Let's keep going. Verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. This is painting a picture of someone under a yoke of slavery. Staff being used to beat his shoulder, rods from his oppressor. And it says that God has broken all of these as on the day of Midian. This points out that God's gospel pronouncement will mean deliverance from oppression. By, by whom... I ask you, are God's people ultimately oppressed? But by Satan, the serpent who originally deceived us in the garden. But look how the Bible frames the gospel after Christ's arrival. Hebrews 2.14 gives us this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Christ likewise partook Of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slaveries. First John says for this purpose was the son of God made manifest that he might destroy the work of the evil one. The gospel heralds the end of oppression for all who believe. Isaiah's prophecy borrows here from the imagery of Judges chapter 7, where God overthrew the Midianites, a mighty army, by his own power, through the most ridiculous means. Go home, read Judges chapter 7. The most ridiculous means, he overthrows the Midianites, and he does it by his own power. He does not do it by a well-armed, well-trained, or strategically intelligent army. And when he delivers us from oppression, this is the point. This is why it's like the day of Midian. God does not deliver us from oppression through his partnership with us. He does it by his own power and for the sole expression of his own glory. Verse 5, stay with me in Isaiah chapter 9. 
Verse 5, I love this one. It took me a little bit to understand what this one was saying. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And this pictures the absolute perfection of God's victory over the tormentors of his people. Think about what it's saying there, the, this idea of boots and, and bloody clothing being burned. Our, our tormentors are the world. We sang about it earlier, the world, the flesh, the devil. And God promises to reduce all of our enemies, formerly blood-stained trophies that they use for intimidation against us, that they use for the grounds of their boasting, God promises to reduce those trophies to mere ashes that will be blown away by the wind. Incredible promise. But now we've arrived at our text, and so we have to ask ourselves, how would God flood the world with this light? How would he bring, bring about this great descriptive victory that he has promised? Would he do it with trumpets and armies marching a fearful thunderous sound? Would he do it with angelic warriors descending from the throne room of heaven armed to the teeth? No. Not at all. He does it with the birth of an infant. Verse 6. For unto us is... A child is born. Unto us a son is given. From this inauspicious beginning, the powers of darkness would crumble and would be guaranteed to crumble until they are no more. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God, in his eternal wisdom, chose to covertly overthrow the enslavers of this world through the appearance of a squirmy little baby. But little did the forces of darkness know, the same forces that he would soon dispel, that the cry from his cradle was his piercing battle cry. Now, if you've lost me, if you're not with me anymore, let me let you know. I, I forgot to brag on this last week for the first time here, but my third grandchild, my grandson Nehemiah, has has been born a few weeks ago, and he's the cutest little thing. He's adorable. I love him just like I love my other two grandchildren. I love just holding him and being in the wonder of seeing him. I, I love it. But let me tell you one thing he is not. He is not intimidating. Okay, maybe under certain diaper conditions. But besides that, he is not, he is not at all intimidating. But see, in the same situation, when Christ was born... There was nothing about his outer appearance. Now, most of you have, have seen these Catholicized images of Christ with his hands up toward heaven, a little halo, golden halo over his head. That was not what Jesus looked like in the, in the manger. And yet, the Magi from the East rightly discerned that a king had been born. And they came to worship, to pay homage, while wicked Herod 
furiously tried to exterminate him, viewing him as a threat. Think about it. That's the only two responses you can have to the birth of a king. You can either humble yourself before the king or you can try to put the king to death. But Herod's plans were doomed from the beginning because in the same book, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27, we are told, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? Herod and his edict, no way. His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Some foolish king in the Middle East? 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, not a chance. But this infant child wasn't born to simply perform a redemptive task, then rush back home to his heavenly home, and while sinners still perished, and the world still further deteriorated into rebellion and chaos, this is what you need to know about the fullness of the gospel. Not just the salvation and forgiveness of individual sinners, but Christ has come to reign. Christ has come not to take sides, but to take over. In the past, I've compared the birth of Christ to the invasion of Normandy by the Allied forces on D-Day in 1944. And though that war, if you're familiar with World War II history, that war raged on for another year after the beaches were stormed, Historians uniformly agree that June 6, 1944 signaled the breaking of Hitler's stranglehold over Europe. Now, Bethlehem was the king of kings' invasion of the shores of this world. He still had to grow. He still had to mature. He had to live. He had to die on a cross. He had to rise again and ascend to his father. But his birth made clear to his enemies that their war was lost. And even to this day, sinners resist his rule. They blaspheme the glory of his name. But the king will establish his reign until all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is what the end of the Bible actually tells us. You want to figure out the the the, the mysteries of the book of Revelation? Well, don't start at the beginning. Don't go to the end. Start right here. This is what the Bible tells us, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. Watch this, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the meaning of the book of Revelation. Jesus came to take over, and he will reign forever and ever. This is the meaning of Isaiah's prophecy when he says that the government shall be upon his shoulder as Christ's gospel floods the earth. It'll cause some to believe. It'll cause others to be hardened. Some will refuse him and perish. But there is no power strong enough to resist the gathering of his people and the ordering of history toward the end that Christ has destined. All of life is rushing toward the day of his ultimate enthronement over the whole cosmos. So listen to me. It's an election year next year. Don't be anxious. Don't be deceived by what your eyes see. What your ears hear. Because the government is not and never will be on the shoulder of any Republican. 
It is not and never will be on the shoulder of any Democrat. It's not on the shoulder of some tyrant. It's not on the shoulder of the populace that hates the tyrant. The government is forever upon Jesus' shoulder. And he reigns and he shall reign. And that is where we find our confidence. No matter who is in Austin, no matter who is in Washington, no matter who is in City Hall, we don't care in one sense because we know where the government rests and that is upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. So what does his reign look like? Oh, in in typical, beautiful, biblical economy of language, we're given four descriptive names that portray the kind of government we have in Christ. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's look at those. Wonderful Counselor. This is a promise that God's flawless wisdom will be worked out in His rule over history. All things will work together, we're told in Romans 8, for the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. When this world seems to be reeling out of control as it does so often, we are assured that the eternal hand of God is on both the wheel and the rudder of the ship. And he knows how to guide his beloved people into safe harbors despite the threat from any storm. And he's gifted his people with the incalculable treasure of the Bible to instruct us, to comfort us, to protect us. And we don't need gurus, we don't need visions, we don't need people falsely claiming to be apostles or prophets to help us discover his counsel because he has given us his perfect and holy word in order that we might know the way in which we are to walk. God is not some silent idol, unable to speak, but he governs by the clarity of scripture. But he's also the mighty God. This tells us that his government will be backed by omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, eternity, and perfection. He hasn't sent emissaries to rule in his stead. He rules directly and he rules authoritatively. We're told, I love this one, that he is the everlasting father. In a world where so many of us have reached adulthood without having the benefit of a concerned or even emotionally present father, he promises tender parental intimacy and oversight over his own. God does not dwell in some high castle guarded by armed, stern-faced guards with, uh, uh, with, uh, as a potentate that it's impossible to gain an audience with. For us, he's already torn the veil and invited us in as his adopted children into his very presence to know him intimately, to day and night relay our hopes and our fears to him in prayer. Christ said at the ascension that he would be with us always. God has said over and over again in scripture that he will never leave us or forsake us. He is not, listen to this, some of you so desperately need to hear this. God is not a deadbeat dad. He is not emotionally aloof. God is perfectly an everlasting father. But we're not even done. Last, we're told he's the prince of peace. And this means not only that he has won the war as we have described, but that it is his administrative priority 
to ensure that hostilities between us and the Father are never resumed. You know how he does that? Hebrews tells us that he does that by ever living to make intercession for us. His wounds displayed before the Father day and night ensure the peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah goes on in the latter half of verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Think about the power of that statement. Egypt and all its glory disappeared into the desert sands. Mighty Rome is just a pile of scattered ruins across Europe and Africa. But his government continues to increase and will never cease to do so. Every time a sinner responds to him in faith, every time the church proclaims the truth and lives as witnesses to these truths, Christ's kingdom enlarges. But it's not just Jesus' rule that's increasing, but the peace that the prince has established. This is a reminder that the kingdom of God, as we experience, as we experience it, gets better and better every single day. I don't know how many of you have been saved more than a year, more than five years, ten years, twenty years, fifty years. But let me tell you something, as someone who's been a believer for 35 or so years now, the name of Jesus, and I mean this sincerely from the bottom of my heart, becomes sweeter every day. Every day, with all the struggles that I still have, my faith becomes stronger. And most importantly, without fail, every day, my hope in the, in the future that Christ is destined for me becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. And all of this, I'm promised in Scripture, is going to culminate when Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, has put all of his enemies under his feet. And his government and the peace of that government will have reached maximum capacity as this renewed and redeemed earth bursts forth with his glory. The last part of verse 7 says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Three things are made clear by this portion of scripture. Number one, the Christ will rule from the throne of David. And why is that important? Because this again is a fulfillment of a promise made to the good king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And But David was was just a mere shadow of the perfect substance that we find in Christ, in his rule over all the nations, not just Israel. All that David was was a prototype of the perfection that would be in Christ. Second, it tells us that Christ's kingdom will be established and it will be upheld by perfect justice. There is a day coming when no sinner will be able to escape punishment. And more clearly, to be more honest, that we're in that day. No sinner, no matter what happens, no matter who gets off because they got great lawyers and all this stuff, no sinner will ever escape justice, perfect justice. They won't escape punishment. Either, you have two options, either you will die in your sins or your sins will be imputed to Christ the Savior by grace. There is not a third option. But nothing, and I assure you, nothing will be overlooked. For all time, 
A day is coming when this will be complete. Every scale will be placed in perfect balance. And that could be refreshing in some respects and terrifying in others. But here's where we find our comfort. that Christ also says that he will rule in righteousness. Christ has never and will never exploit his subjects. He will not accept bribes. He will not judge with favoritism. After centuries, the entire human history of mankind has been just just uh, stained with, at the very best, flawed leaders, at the worst, really wicked leaders. But But a time is coming when righteousness will be the standard of Christ's rule. And you and I cannot even imagine a world where justice and righteousness are the only standard. Every time we see leaders acting unjustly and unrighteously, it can be terribly discouraging and terribly disheartening. But we should let our hearts cling to the promise of what's coming. We should rejoice that it will not always be this way. And lastly, we're assured that Christ's rule will be permanent from this time forth and forevermore. In our existence, everything is temporary. Everything is. Nothing lasts forever. But Christ's rule will never end. And this is our hope. This is our joy. In fact, it's the very core of our salvation. That what Christ has begun, the, the, the good work he's begun, he will finish that he will never cease his intercession for us, that he is enthroned forever. And let's not overlook the beautiful last phrase of our text. I love it. Verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May I just read that to you one more time because I want it to really sink in. I want you to marinate in this all day long, all day tomorrow. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a promise. See, God is not casual. God is not passive about redeeming his people or his increasing rule of this world. He is zealous for these things. It's his greatest joy. It's his fervent desire to be merciful to those who cry out to him. And if that's the case, which it is, we have absolutely no warrant to believe that he will ever abandon us to our own sins. Did you hear that? Those of you who stumbled in here today under a weight of condemnation because of dumb choices you made this week, Christ will never abandon you to your own sins, to those who have faith in him. He certainly will never oppose you, or, or, or I'm sorry, he'll never expose you to the oppression of the devil again. He won't do it. There's a lot of nonsense online right now, and let's call it what it is. It's nonsense that people claiming to be Christians said, yeah, I went to this deliverance guy and he cast out 27 demons out of me. Well, there's two problems with that. If you're a Christian, there were no demons in you. And if there were demons in you, you weren't a Christian. Y'all are real quiet. 
but I am going to stay right here till I get a response to that statement because some of you are already being deceived. If there are 27 demons in you, you are not a Christian. And if you are a Christian, there are not 27 demons in you. There's not a fraction of a demon in you because Christ who has saved you to the uttermost, according to Hebrews 7.25, will never expose you to the oppression of the devil. And more importantly, he will never expose you to the cold reality of the grave. Oh, sure, your body will be deposited there. But the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For you, it'll be like stepping through a doorway from one reality to another. What does all this mean as we wrap up Advent for 2023? It means that Christ will have a people for himself and he will rule over them and that that rule will never, ever end. Will you stand with me? We, the church, say, all hail King Jesus. You are the one enthroned the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, working all things, everything that seems so coincidental to us, everything that seems so traumatic to us, you are all, you're working all of those things together to a glorious, Christ-exalting end. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the confidence that comes with that. I have no idea, God, what 2024 is going to bring to us individually, to us corporately. But I know that a year from now, that we the people of God will stand together no matter what is ahead of us, and we will say, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns, and blessed be his name. So God, we pray now that you would reign more and more in our hearts, in our desires, We pray that you would reign in our church. We pray that you would reign in our city, in our state, in our nation, in this world. Reign in the schools that our children go to. Reign in the businesses where we work. Reign over our computers when we're on the internet. Reign over our 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 desires, reign over our frustrations, reign over our past and reign over our future. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the people be glad. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I... um... I want to share a benediction with you before we depart, but I, if you'll, if you'll just allow me, I, this, this one might need a little bit explanation. In the book of Numbers, 
We see uh, Israel just on the brink of entering the promised land in the last portion of their journeys. And a king of Moab named Balak hires, uh, a, a, I guess, a kind of a prophet. Uh, he's definitely not a, one of the people of God named Balaam to curse them as they as they travel by. And so he's first forbidden by God to go do this. And then God allows him to go this, go do it. But he says, only speak what I give you. And so it's really kind of a hilarious story in the Bible. So Balaam goes and he sees this great congregation of millions of people that comprise the people of God. And he's standing overlooking them and he's trying to, to, to uh, put together a curse. And every time he opens his mouth, incredible blessings for the people of God come out. It's, it's hilarious. And one of of the things that is tucked in there, this happens like three times, I think maybe four, but it, but in one of those uh, blessings that he speaks over the people of God, he gives this almost chilling prophecy of the coming Messiah. And I thought it'd be a great benediction to read over you. Now he mentions in the end of it, Moab and, and the sons of Sheth. And, and those references are to, just think of it as this, as I read that, these are references to the enemies of God, the world the flesh, and the devil. So if you would place your hands in a receiving position, let me read this to you. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed. Merry Christmas.